0: I'm going to begin reading at verse 9 and read through the end of the chapter to verse 20. And this will be where our exposition comes from when we get there. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. "...nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything." Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is a very pointed passage at sin and how to deal with sin and we're sort of responding to a question that came from the audience in our question and answer series that is surrounding the topic of homosexuality and how if this is i'm not sure what's happening there but whatever we'll just go with it um anyway but this is a very very important topic because it is in the current cultural and societal uh conversation of our day and the question is simply this If homosexuality is becoming the new normal in our culture, how do we respond to it as believing Christians, as the church? We, of all people, need to have a clear understanding on what homosexuality is, where it comes from, and what it means for people. We dare not as believers that have a clear word from God on the issue, we dare not play passive or sort of putting our hands over our eyes and believing it's not a real issue affecting people. Because if this issue has not affected your life personally, in your family, or in your neighborhood, or in the workplace, it will. It's not going away. It's not going away. Homosexuality is going to become more and more part of the cultural landscape of our country and our world. And you see it every day in school systems. It's talked about on government levels. As we know, even controversies about fast food restaurants and the freedom of speech. Those issues are on our blogs and in the newspapers. And, uh, you know, the Congress, a, a particular party... Um, This last week, um, a party platform committee endorsed gay marriage. This was right after I preached my sermon. Someone brought me a newspaper article and circled it and said this is happening this week in a call for the repeal of federal law which recognizes marriage as between a man and a woman. So the very moral fabric of our country is sort of being pulled apart before our eyes and it's happening at lightning speed. So, what do we do with that? Do we just say, well, case okay, Sarah Sarah, this is what's going to happen, whatever will be, will be, and we just ignore it? Well, I want to call us back to the book. The Bible tells us what to do and how to help people who are engaged either in homosexual practice or homosexual desires. And people are. People are engaged at that level all over the place. We're not just dealing with the sin of divorce these days or the sin of, of sexual immorality on a heterosexual level. This is becoming pervasive in same-sex um, attraction and orientation. And as we talked about last week, there are cultural myths that people are propping up to justify this and not call this sin anymore. And my point in bringing up these cultural myths is not to denigrate the society or people's opinions, but to deconstruct them so that we can be clear on the issue so that we can help people. I don't want to stir up hate. I don't want to stir up anger. I don't want to stir up hopelessness. I want to throw a lifeline to people who are ensnared in any sin. And the beauty of the Bible is that the word of God is listing this particular sin in verse 9 as part of a list of all kinds of sins. And if you are ensnared in any one of these sins categorically and unrepentant, then you really have no assurance of your salvation. And so I am trying to just clarify the truth to call people to Christ and I want us to be a church that would welcome people who would come into our midst who have these issues and to talk about them clearly so that we can offer grace and truth. This past week I had several people come and talk to me about their particular personal testimonies and and issues in their own life. And so this is part of what the Word of God does. It stirs up a dialogue about how to help people with the gospel. So that's my heart and that's where I'm coming from. Just as a review, some of the cultural myths that are um, sort of justifying this issue. Number one, same gender orientation and behavior are based on genetics it's the idea that this is all rooted in a person's DNA or genetic makeup and so they can't help themselves. They're sort of bound up in a hopelessness. The Christian version of this is to say, God, why'd you do this to me? Instead of rooting this and basing this on the fall and sin that people are born with. People have natural proclivities and they go in certain directions with their sin. And um, they don't remember choosing that sin, but that doesn't mean that they're not choosing it now and don't need to repent of it. I mean, for instance, a child that um, throws a tantrum on the floor. We never have that happen in our home, but when, you know, particular children that are out there throw tantrums, nobody had to teach that child how to throw a tantrum. It's just the sin of anger that a a person is being allured into, and then they manifest it, and that's the same kind of thing that happens even with same-sex orientation on a desire level. Nobody had to teach that person that. They just found themselves sinning in that way. Number two, same gender orientation and behavior are defined by cultural societal norms. What used to be taboo, what used to be unacceptable is now normal in our society. And so people are saying, look, I just learned it. It's just normal societal behavior. And so the scripture really doesn't apply to this because this is the new normal. And so when the scripture says to deny that, that was a different context and time period. And I would argue um, against that as well because the scripture transcends time and the issues that it was addressing back in the first century in the Greco-Roman culture are the same issues that we're dealing with today. Thirdly, same gender orientation and behavior are affirmed by personal experiences. People use the filter to understand this particular issue of experience instead of the scripture. They say, look, you know, all these people will testify that, you know, it feels right. So they're just doing it. They're acting upon it or they're dealing with it in their own heart based on how it feels. And it's not hurting anybody. And so what's the big problem? Well, one practical error with that is the whole HIV epidemic and STDs. It's not only rooted in, and sort of founded in homosexuality, but it is a problem connected, physical problems connected to that particular sin. Sin is instinctive. People don't have to recall when they sort of began to um, involve themselves in it It was instinctively embedded in their sinful hearts, and so they are beginning to respond to that sin and choose to do it. But they need to um, be called to repent, not called to psychotherapy. Not that therapy is necessarily wrong or couldn't be a help. But at the root level, you have to call a sin a sin if you're going to help somebody out of this ensnarement. There are scriptural... twisting techniques and tactics that people have taken they use sort of weird liberal hermeneutics or interpretive ways to try to dig people um, deeper into their sins they'll say Paul was a male chauvinist they'll say Jonathan and David were homosexuals people will say that you know the passages in scripture that are talking about homosexuality are talking about extreme abuse issues or male prostitution so it doesn't apply to this new normal but that's all twisting scripture And what we showed you last week is that the countercultural truths come from the very word of God. And this has always been called a sin. All the way back to the moral law that Moses wrote in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. All the way through to the end in the book of Revelation, this is always called not normal. It wasn't the original design. It is a sinful practice that God condemns. It is. And you go back to the very beginning, the opposite gender orientation is affirmed by Scripture. It's in God's original design of man and woman. Genesis 131 is where God looked down on what he had created, including man and woman, in perfect complementarian perfection, designed for each other. And what did he say? It is very good. Man shall not... Be alone, it's not good for a man to be alone. And so he designed a helper suitable for him that he took from his rib, put them together and by design, fit them together and said, this is very good, both made in the image of God. We said last week, 1 Corinthians 11, one through three, talks about the Trinity or the Godhead, so how they are in complementarian perfection from all of eternity. God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit equal in essence, but subordinate in roles with each other. And that is where the marriage um, institution came from. It reflects that same design and headship and submission in marriage. That's a true marriage. I don't care what our government calls marriage ultimately. I mean that in no disrespect to our governing institution that we need to pray for, but I don't care if the government calls same-sex marriage, a marriage. That's not true marriage. It's not rooted and founded in Scripture. True marriage is between a man and a woman. Again, I don't know what I'm doing. You know, they, I don't believe the demons are in the sound system, but we, we do need to get this message out, right? So we'll just sort of, you know, go for it. It'll, it'll keep waking us up along the way. I'm sure it's my fault. All right, here we go. It's all in God's creative design. Secondly, God, um, his purpose between bringing a man and a woman together in physical union and one flesh relationship was to procreate. I mean, not everyone is blessed with children, but the original intent was to be fruitful and multiply. We find that in Genesis, find that in at the end of Malachi 2.15, um, to be fruitful and multiply. People try to undo that and say our world and society is cramped. We don't need more kids, but um, that is unnatural thinking. The maternal instinct is part of the image and design of God, and we are called to fruitful, be fruitful and multiply. The Kratz family has made its contribution with six kids, and, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a blessing to have children and to promote that Thirdly, um, God's glory is in marriage. Every marriage is a picture of Christ and his church. And the glory in his love for the church is pictured profoundly in a husband and a wife. Ephesians 5, 31 through 32. Number four, God's condemnation of unnatural um, behavior. And that is in and through scripture. Everywhere that the scripture addresses same-sex orientation, the scripture is calling that sin it does it just does everywhere Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20 talk about if a man lies with a man as with a woman as if he's with a woman that is detestable that's what God calls that detestable and the moral law and the code system in the old testament meant that that was punishable by death and the blood would not be on our hands very serious. The same word as translated into Greek in the First Corinthians 6 verse 9 passage we just read. Practicing homosexuality is the exact same word Paul is using from Leviticus 18 and 20. So he's picking right up on that theme and applying it in the New Testament church as a sin punishable by eternal death unless repented of. 1 Timothy 1, 9 9 through 10 talks about this as law breaking. And Romans 1, 24 through 27 says that men and women who exchange their natural desires for unnatural desires are doing something that is called shameful lust. It's always called sin. It's always called sin. And it's important for us to call it what. The Bible calls it. Jude 7, which is referencing back to the issue of Sodom and Gomorrah, says that people were involved in unnatural lust and immorality. So what do we do with this? Do we just leave people in this sin? Are we trying to condemn people and not you know, give a, a lifeline out to them? Not at all. We just have to start with what it actually is. The more our culture, the more the sitcoms in our culture and media sort of numbs us to the issue or excuses the issue, the less potent we'll be with help. We won't be able to help people. We've got to be clear with the word of God so we can be clear with the gospel. Jesus came with being full of grace and truth, not grace at the expense of truth or truth only with not a gracious spirit, but both together, grace coming True truth is the way that we need to approach this. So same gender orientation we talked about last week is transformed by the gospel. And I'm saying that this transformation isn't only in terms of practice, but this transformation, my gospel that I understand from scripture and your gospel is powerful enough to overthrow even the desires for same-sexual orientation in the, the recesses of a person's imagination, It better be able to. I mean, just think about the list here. You know, such were some of you, adulterers, idolaters, greedy people, drunkards, thieves, thieves, revilers, swindlers. I mean, the gospel works on the level of the desire level to transform a person from the inside out. Jesus, talking to the Pharisees, said it's not what goes into a person's mouth as if, you know, legalistic religion is, is harming a person. That's not, what's, that's not where the sin comes from. The sin comes from the recesses of the heart. That's what defiles a person. James 1, 13 and through 15 talks about how when lust is conceived, it brings forth death. And so sin is at the lusting level. Sin is something that matures from an outside temptation to an inside temptation that lures us and entices us to follow after it on the heart level. And there is deliverance for people who have same-sex orientation. And I've been reading enough to know that that is a real problem even within the church. There's a guy that I, I actually knew in a former church context who uh, received his Ph.D. from a premier Institution in the UK who ultimately wrote a book about his own personal struggle and bent towards same sexual orientation Which what's sad about this case as I read the whole book this week is that his testimony is one where he's hopeless and feels trapped And imprisoned by this bent towards same sexual desire and I I, I hurt for this guy because he's not calling the issue a sin He basically says, you know what, I know that I was washed. This is the title of his book. He knows he was washed, but he's waiting for ultimate deliverance in heaven. And everywhere in between, he's just going to have to be the wounded warrior who's been given this thorn in the flesh that he fights against in discouragement and despair throughout his life. And so what he's chosen to do is he's chosen to take a path of being a celibate homosexual Christian, which I'm just going, what? What? That doesn't jive with scripture to me. I mean, the gift of singleness is a gift that, that people enjoy where they're, they're unfettered and unhindered in their, in their gift to the body of Christ. They, they're not distracted by a marriage or a family. They're like Paul. They're like Jesus who, who are fulfilled in God in a unique, specific way so that they can serve. That's singleness. That's biblical singleness in 1 Corinthians 7. And then the idea that this guy calls himself a homosexual Christian or a gay Christian, that's like saying, oh, you know, I'm a murderous Christian or I'm an angry Christian, you know, I, or I'm, I'm, a, I'm a kleptomaniac, I, I like to steal and I'm a Christian. I mean, okay, you can be tempted in those ways and you can fight those sins your whole life, I get that, but I don't think you can title yourself as that and Christian because in essence, you're saying I'm a defeated Christian. I'm an unempowered Christian. I'm a limping Christian. And I I hurt for this guy. I don't know where he is in terms of his salvation. I'm not standing in judgment over him. There have been people who have actually, I respect, who have endorsed his book. But I cannot call somebody a categorical sinner in category and Christian. Because we've been delivered from these sins. And I want to show you um, about that deliverance this morning from 1 Corinthians 6. I mean, this guy in this book, he, he actually aligns himself with a Roman Catholic, a late Roman Catholic priest, Henry Nouwen, who's sort of a prolific author and, and Christian mystic, but who was bound up in his homosexual tendencies his whole life. And so this guy is resonating with him, basically saying the call to Christianity is a call to be a monk in terms of your opportunities and it's, it's sad to me. But let's, let's find out from Scripture how to be delivered. And this could be for your own life, for your own heart, with any sin category, or for you to be equipped to help people to fight against their same-sex orientation or any sin. This applies to any sin in a person's life. It's found in Two steps. Uh, You know, we've kind of talked about the necessary elements of grace and truth and aiming at a person's heart, but it's found in two steps. And I'm going to call for some interaction at this point. I don't typically do this. This is group interaction, so we can all respond in the same way. I just want you to sort of memorize and get these two ideas. First of all, to be changed, you need to grasp your new position. And secondly, you need to grasp your new disposition. Let's say that together. First, you need to grasp your new position. Then you need to grasp your new disposition. New position and new disposition. Your position is the state in which you've been saved. It happened in your life and you grasp that fact that you were saved. And then your disposition is your outlook on life and you need to grasp your new identity in Christ and how it changes your thinking. That's the key to the Christian life. You grasp what God did for you and that you are secure in that, and then you think differently because of that. And if you don't think differently because of that, then your actions and attitudes will never be transformed. So you got to grasp your new position and then your new outlook your new disposition your new way of thinking and living okay that's what Paul does in these verses let's start with the new position this is verse 11 key verse that unlocks people from their sin and such were some of you such were some of you talking past tense, there was a chapter in your life story where something happened that transformed you once and for all. And he's talking specifically about these categories of sin. You used to be identifiably that before Christ. You were categorically involved in an unrepentant manner of life and then bam-o, God transformed you. That's what he says. Literally, the literal... Greek here, I love. And these things some of you were. That's how it reads. And these things some of you were. Did you notice the plural use of these things? In other words, someone who's a homosexual or someone who's an adulterer or someone who's covetous. I mean, they're not just one thing. This is not just a list of, you know, those who were on death row and, you know, that particular group that's kind of the sad people you know they came into Christ and they were the worst of the worst people talk that way no no this is talking about normal sinners who were involved in a lot of these categories before they came to Christ that's what Paul is saying he's saying Corinthian church which was you know a church known of its sin and it was involved in the cosmopolitan sins of Corinth I get that but you know what these sins are sins that we're involved in, that the church is involved in now, drunkenness, that's, that's not be, having self-control, idolatry, that's loving anything more than Jesus Christ, sexual immorality. There are people who have sinned on the internet this weekend who are here. I mean, these are categorical sins that used to dominate people's lives and then God saved them out of it. It's not that they're not temptations that still crop up and people fail, but in general, people were living for this, and now they're living for Christ. Such were some of you. Past tense, multi-categories. Categories Categories that defined who these people were. Now, I'm going to get into some nitty-gritty, some some Greek language here. So put on your thinking caps and bear with me. This this is what excites me during the week, is sort of getting into some of this, and I want to try to share it with you. Verse 11. It says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. I want to point something out, and you can pencil this in your Bibles if you want, but in the original language, that word but is Allah, which is the strong, adversative word in Greek. It's by contrast, you were washed. And then that same word Allah is repeated again, In front of, you were sanctified. So it's, but you were washed, but you were sanctified. Then it's repeated a third time, but you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Three times that contrastative word is emphasized. You were this, that's who you were, that's what your life was all about, but this happened, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified. God did a big deal work in your life. Now, the reason Paul's being so strong, and we're going to find this out in the following paragraph, is he's trying to pull people out of some sin patterns that are cropping back up. Things that are happening in the mind level and the imagination level and the practice level. And you've got to start with a strong word about what God did to pull you out of sin patterns that can creep back up into your life. Second sort of expository lesson I want to bring up is the idea that being Washed, sanctified, and justified. These words are cast in the aorist use. The word aorist is where we get the word horizon. It's ora'o or horizon is, is the word. And it's the idea that when you look at a word concept like being washed, sanctified, or justified, you're looking at them like you're looking in sum total of what happened as if you're looking at the sum total of a mountain range horizon in front of you. It's like having a clear shot of the Alaska Range across the Cook Inlet. Boom! You see something that's massive in sum total in front of you. That's amazing. That's the use that Paul, usage that Paul is using with these words. He's saying, you were categorically washed. You were categorically sanctified. You were categorically justified. And it means something big time. Like an Alaska Range horizon in your life big time happened to you. What does that mean? Well, washed is a metaphor for spiritual cleansing in your life. There was a point in time as a believer that God woke you up. Jesus said to Nicodemus, John 3, you have to be born again. Nicodemus, you're not going to get who I am or what the gospel means unless the Spirit of God wakes you up. That's regeneration. That's washed here. Titus 3, 5 says you were born again. by You were saved by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. That is spiritual activity that God does in our lives. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, you're a new creation. Old things pass away, everything becomes new. You're washed. It's all alluding to Ezekiel 36, which says that God, when he saves you, takes out the heart of stone and removes it and replaces it with a heart of flesh, something that's soft, that wants God. You've tasted and seen that God is good. And in that Ezekiel 13 context, Ezekiel talks about the washing away of idols. What does he mean does he mean literally there was a physical flood that knocked over the the Baal idols and the Asherah no he's saying that in your heart there's something where your heart lets go of the world at some massive level that's washing that happens when you are saved you got to remember that happened to have a new disposition position disposition that's what influence number two Uh, You have this complete complete inward cleansing, and number two, you're sanctified. Sanctification here um, isn't the same use as Paul uses it later, which is progressive sanctification, like you're growing from one level of glory to the next. Sanctification here is a point in time um, thing that happened where God grabs a hold of you and you are claimed and secure. It's the idea that God consecrated you. He set you apart for life. That's sanctification in this use. It's hagiadzo, you're set apart. You're made holy in his eyes forever. You're claimed, you're consecrated, you're his. You're sanctified. And then thirdly, justification or you're justified. You'll hear me use this term a lot. It's a big time salvation word in scripture. It's a legal declaration where God looks at you and says, a declaration pronouncement upon you as judge to guilty person, you are not guilty and you are set free from your sins. Your sins will not be held against you. That's justification. You are, Romans 4, counted as righteous. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he who knew no sin, Christ, became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus 2,000 years ago, bore the wrath of God in your place, took your sin upon himself, died on the cross for it, and gave to you his righteousness, giving you the life that you never lived, that he lived perfectly, so that you could stand before God one day. And when he asks you, why should I let you into my heaven? You can say, because Jesus Christ put on me the robe of righteousness. His life is life he lived in my place so that I can stand clean and innocent and blameless before you. That is God's work in your life. He counts you positionally righteous. Can you believe it? Isn't it amazing? Jesus went to death row in your place and let you free. It's as, simple, it's as simple as a concept for a child to understand, and it is very, very deep in terms of its implicational force when you begin to plumb the depths of Jesus Christ, the second member of the Trinity, choosing to take your place to give him your righteousness but that's what's supposed to break through into our hearts where we go by faith wow you did that for me why he did that for us and we're supposed to grasp that concept so that we can break through our sin habits and that's what Paul breaks out in verses 12 through 20 There's a lot here, but basically, Paul is recognizing that the Corinthian church was falling into licentiousness. They were abusing grace, and they were saying, look, okay, I know I'm washed, I'm sanctified, I'm justified, so I get an ollie-ollie oxen-free card, and I can do whatever I want to do. Abuse grace, and, you know, who cares? It's all about grace, so I'm going to not be accountable, and I'm going to be involved in immorality. And that's what Paul knew and sensed from what he heard about this church, and so he's saying, look... It's incongruent for you to be washed, sanctified, and justified, and for you to know that, and for you to think that you can at the same time have a get-out-of-jail-free card and do whatever you want to do in sinful practice. And again, it's a battle that's fought in the mind. It's how you think about yourself that will deliver you from sins that enslave you. Look at his approach in verse 12. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Well, under grasping your new disposition, Paul is basically bringing an argument where he's saying, you need to, to be unshackled from your sin. You need to deconstruct. You need to take apart this mindset that you are entitled to physical satisfaction. I mean, when a person is saying, you know, I am just stuck in same gender orientation i'm frustrated i'm just stuck there what they're really saying is i am entitled to that for my life it's owed to me it's owed to me because it's how god made me it's part of my physicality it's part of my genetic makeup i never knew any different it's the new normal it's just it's just how i think and i'm bound up in that and so i'm owed this because of my physical attraction And when someone is bound up in heterosexual immorality, they're saying the same thing. I'm entitled to this. I can't help myself. How am I supposed to feed my flesh unless I act on these things? And Paul is saying, "Uh uh-uh, no, that doesn't work. Something massively spiritual happened in your life that should cause you not to think that way. Well, the slogan the Corinthian church was using begins in verse 12. Paul repeats it twice. All things are lawful for me. It's all lawful. It's all in bounds. Romans 6 is where Paul addressed the Roman church. And he said, look, you know, should sin accre- increase so that grace would abound all the more? He says, may it never be. Are you kidding me? Are you going to stomp on the cross of Christ in that way? Paul's saying that's ridiculous. All things aren't helpful. Verse 12. This isn't building your life spiritually. This isn't building other people up for you to sin in this way as a, as a professing believer. Paul says, okay, all things are lawful for me too, verse 12. But he says, but I will not be enslaved by anything. What he's bringing up here is he's saying, look, immorality, sexual immorality is enslaving you. And even though we're given grace and we're not going to be condemned for anything we do as Christians, our Christian testimony is one where we are enslaved if we're giving over to these temptations, giving in. Throwing her hands up and saying, I can't do anything about it. Enslavement. The word enslavement, exousia, is the word master. It's the idea that you're saying, I am mastered by this issue in my life. It's indomitable. I can't get out of it. I'm enslaved. And Paul's saying, no, as a Christian, you're not enslaved by anything. Look at Romans 6. i got to turn us there really quickly. He says the exact same thing in a very potent way. Romans 6, verse 12. He says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Skip back to verse 11. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. It's all a battle in the mind. It's how you think about yourself. It's your disposition. If you believe, hey, I got no dog in this fight, I can't beat it, I'm ensnared, I just throw my hands up, then you just give over to it. But Paul's saying, no, you're not supposed to let it reign or have mastery over you. You're not. You're supposed to deconstruct that argument. If you look at verse 13, if you look at verse 13, Paul is saying, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for the food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. What's he mean by that? Well, he's bringing up food as an example of how people are using sexual sin as their entitlement. He's saying, look, just like you believe you're entitled for food, well, we do need to eat food to survive, to be healthy, to grow, and our bodies need that, and so we ingest food. But guess what? The ultimate purpose of your body isn't to eat. That's not the ultimate purpose. The ultimate purpose of your body is not to enjoy chocolate sundaes. That's not the be-all, end-all of living. Now, we enjoy that. Food's a blessing. There's sort of raw food that's tasteless, and then there's really good food, right? But he says, look, One day in the resurrection, just as Jesus was raised from the dead, your body is going to be raised. Why? So that you can worship God perfectly. You were made for the Lord, not just to eat. The kingdom of God is not just eating and drinking. It's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Romans 14, verse 17. It's the kingdom of God stuff we're talking about. I mean, listen. Just practically speaking, there's people who have bad marriages who do not enjoy their marital intimacy. There are people who are single who dread the fact that they are single and aren't enjoying marital intimacy. There are people who are, you know, in all kinds of situations where, you know, from the outside looking in, you go, man, you're married, and so you're ultimately satisfied. Isn't life great and wonderful for you? Not necessarily. The only mindset that conquers any of our difficult situations and circumstances is to believe I wasn't just meant for physical fulfillment, whether food or marital intimacy. My life is for Christ. To live is Christ. To be satisfied is in Christ. Um, my, My joy is to give glory to God. Whether we eat or drink or whatsoever we do, we do all to the glory of God. That's satisfaction, and that's what Paul is pointing this church to. So we deconstruct arguments for personal entitlement. Verse 14, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. There's a temporal dimension to how we live life here. There won't even be marriage in heaven according to the teachings of Christ. The ultimate satisfaction in heaven is to be with Christ. Raised up by his power to be there. Well, secondly, under grasping your new disposition, you have to deconstruct arguments for spiritual independence. There's a mindset out there that says, look, you know, if it feels feels good, do it. If it's not hurting other people, then it's not wrong. If our society and culture is saying that homosexuality is the new normal, then this isn't unnatural anymore. It's not wrong. It's just normalized by what the culture says. And so it's not bothering anybody for me to live this way or believe this way, or have a heart pulled this way? Well, contrary to that, the Bible says that we are part of a living temple together. And as professing and genuine believers, we are influencing each other by the choices that we're making. And if we are living in immorality on any level, we are hurting other people in the body of Christ. Sin hurts people. Don't think any, any way otherwise. When you, when you sin, you're hurting your children. When you sin, you're hurting your parents. When you sin, you hurt the family of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 talks about how if one member suffers, they all suffer. We're all impacted by the attitudes and actions of each other. For us to be a vibrant, healthy church, we have to love this new disposition. And we have to be willing to fight for it. We're not going to be perfect. We're not going to not sin sometimes, but we have to be repenters, committed to confession, committed to repenting, and committed to being part of each other's lives. When you sin, guess what happens to you? You isolate yourself from each other, don't you? When you sin, you don't want to be around a godly person because a godly person will see you as a drawn countenance. You'll be crestfallen. They'll say, what's wrong? And you say, nothing, right? And then there's something broken. But when you want righteousness, even when you sin and you're around other believers, they say, what's wrong? You say, let me tell you all of what's wrong. Let me share my heart and have you help me out and hold me accountable. That's what the body of Christ is meant for. And that's what Paul is bringing up. Verse 15. First of all, you are part of a body. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. He, used, he uses strong language here. Never, never do that. The idea is that you should view yourself as a Christian as a body part of the body of Christ. A limb, a arm, a hand, a leg, a foot, a toe. you're part of the body of Christ, and so for you to take your body part and enjoin yourself immorally is to besmirch the name of christ and to hurt the body john calvin put it this way he said you're tearing christ apart limb by limb when you sin in this way it's ripping apart the body of christ and this is good Dispositional language. It changes the way you think. Okay, am I going to click on that? Am I going to watch that? Am I going to feed on that billboard? Well, I'm, oh, wait, I'm ripping apart the body of Christ if I do that. No. You say, no, never. The Greek word megenito, it's a strong Greek word. May it never be. I don't do that. That's wrong. And guess what? It takes this kind of dramatic language to stop sinning in this way. We're not called to just be celibate monks who suffer and and just say, well, you know, I've got this bent that I can't get out of. No, you might have tendencies. You might have temptations, but they are there to be fought where you are not enslaved by them anymore. God wants to give you the abundant life. Which comes through holiness and purity, and sometimes suffering and heart, heartfelt confession, where you enjoin people into your sin problem, and they pray for you, and they pray with you and they cry with you, and they bear you up and they hold you accountable. I've done it with people in the body of Christ, my entire spiritual life, where you hold people accountable, and you help them by giving them hope. It's a gospel of hope. You're part of a body. Secondly, you're joined to the Lord. Look at verse 16. We kind of read this already, or do you not know that you, he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her, for it is written, the, the two shall, will become one flesh, verse 17 says, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Uh, Paul is alluding to the one flesh relationship. Um, born in eden genesis chapter 2 the one flesh relationship a union that is spiritual and physical and he says look if you're acting out in this immorality and you're of the lord and you're connected to the lord think of the implications of that you don't want to drag christ's name through the mud that's what he's saying you're joined to the lord you don't want to shame the name of christ in this way number three dwelt by the holy spirit verses 18 and 19 flee from sexual immorality every other sin a person commits is outside the body but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body stop there a second the word flee uh, the latin derivation of that greek word is the word fugitive it's where we get the word fugitive It's the idea that we are supposed to be running from this kind of sin, and we run from it mentally first. We run from it at the level of the imagination. That's where the Bible calls us to kill sin, to mortify it in the recesses of our thinking. You change how you think, and you also set up physical parameters. You run like Joseph did out of the house of Potiphar's wife. You flee. You get away from it. Called to flee. And then he says, you're sinning against your own body. Uh, There's a lot of people who will say, well, it's not hurting me or hurting things, but the whole HIV epidemic and STDs that is pervasive in our world um, comes through immoral relations in all variations and kinds. It does. Jesus, or the writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews 13, let the marriage bed be undefiled and it is being defiled in and through our culture. And we need to be aware of this issue and call people to flee from it. We need to call them to flee from it graciously and helpfully and evangelistically and within the church through accountability. But nevertheless, people need to be called to flee from it so that we can be joy-filled in our lives. I remember a, a mentor of mine in seminary, he said to the seminary class, don't give up your life and your ministry for 15 minutes of pleasure it's a great way to put it never forgot it but it's true it's true people deify glorify sensuality don't they it's everywhere that's heaven that's satisfaction here on earth is through that and guess what it's not it's guilt-filled proverbs chapter 6 says that you're reduced to the price of a loaf of bread. Now there's, there's recovery from that. There's the gospel. There's, there's growth from, from that sin. You're not forever locked in that sin. If you've fallen in that way, there's grace and covering. But it does take the spiritual life out of you, even physically, for a time. It's very important to understand that, not defame the name of Christ over the idea that you are entitled for it that's what Paul is that's his primary thrust you're not entitled for it and you are the temple of the Holy Spirit again grasping your position your identity or do you not know verse 13 that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God stop there your temple say man I would never want to defame the temple of God Holiness think of the Levitical priest that used to go on go into the Holy of Holies once a year And he had would have bells attached to his His dress or his robe or his skirt and and he would have a rope that was fastened around him So that if in any way he profaned the holiness of God in in the presence of the Shekinah glory over the altar The Ark of the Covenant, if in any way he defamed the holiness of God, he'd be struck dead instantaneously. And they would have to drag him out. That's the picture that Paul is painting here that we are as a Christian. Where is the glory of God? It's in the church. It's in the church. Used to the glory of Shekinah presence used to be in the temple, in the Old Testament, in the tabernacle in the holy behind the 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 shroud of of the holy of holies now it's in the church the glory of god is in you individually and corporately as the church so we don't want to desecrate the holiness of god and then lastly beginning at the end of verse 19 going into verse 20 you are owned by god owned by god you're not your own It's the opposite of entitlement. You think you own your own body, you own your own appetites, you own your own situation. You can justify it in all these ways, but guess what? You are owned by God. God made you, he created you, and then he redeemed you as a believer. You were ransomed with the blood of Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter nine, or Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, Jesus said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many, right? It's a ransom payment that was given by Christ on Calvary. His shed blood is the payment for your sins. It's not as first Peter 1, 18 and 19. It wasn't precious metals and stones and gold and silver that bought you, it was the precious blood of Jesus Christ. You're in a slave market, you're standing on the platform, you're bound you know, in your sins, you're, you're sold as a slave under sin, condemned to a life leading to eternal death, and Christ intervened and saved you and said, I'm going to give you my life and my death as a ransom payment for you to bring you into my family. Once and for all, washed, sanctified, justified, new position, you're, you're owned and bought by Christ. And so you glorify God because of that. You live for him as a slave, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, an offering to him. Now listen, again, I'm not saying that these sins are easy to overcome, but you have to begin with the basics, your position, which acknowledging that identifying with Christ and what he's done in your life it creates in you a new disposition a new outlook a new way of thinking about your sin and about your spiritual growth and if you have any needs along these lines we want the counseling room to be open we want the lights to be on in the offices all week long where we are praying with you searching the scripture evaluating your situation and loosing you from this ensnarement We have the answers in Scripture. Congress will not figure this out. Government will not spiritually help anyone. This is soul surgery that we're talking about. The gospel is live, it's active, it's good news, it's transformative, and it's the only thing that can break the bonds of this kind of enslavement. Let's pray. Father, I pray that this has been a...